0: Welcome to another episode of Dr.
1: Doctor, the radio show featuring
0: your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today
0: our guest is gonna be Joe Dukowski, and he's gonna discuss his book and his work. His book is called Perfectly Human, What Children with Disabilities Teach Us About Happiness, Suffering, and Being Human. It's going to be fascinating to talk with him, but before that, we have some medical news. And in choosing a medical news item for this episode, something from the New York Times, of all places, caught my eye. And it was the title of an article from April 3rd, 2018, called Older Americans Are Hooked on... Not, not Phonics drugs. No. No, not not phonics. <laughs> good, good thought, though. Five points for effort. No, on vitamins. And, and this reminds me, back when I was an intern way back in the last millennium... All the internal medicine residents were taking vitamin E and folic acid because they said it helps heart disease. Well, a few years later, studies came out showing not only does it not help heart disease, but it increases the risk of heart failure and prostate cancer and death from any cause to take extra doses of vitamin E. So what we once thought was true is not. And so this brings us to the point that currently... Well, at least 2013, as of a Gallup poll, 68%, two-thirds of those Americans over the age of 65, take at least one supplement a day. And 29% of them take at least four supplements of some kind. So is this irrational exuberance?
1: Mm. And very expensive urine in some cases.
0: Very expensive urine, often colorful urine. Well, in fact, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, have spent the small sum of $2.4 billion, that's billion with a B as in making honey, since 1999 studying vitamins and minerals. And they have shown nothing conclusive helps from the world of supplements with regard to health, because once you have enough for a healthy diet, taking higher doses doesn't help. In fact, within the last couple of months, there have been studies showing that calcium supplementation in osteoporosis may well be harmful. It does not show that it reduces risk of fractures. And it increases the risk of kidney stones and some adverse cardiovascular effects. And that came out in the April 2018 issue of European Journal of Endocrinology. Then another study from the March issue of Jama Cardiology, that's heart disease. The article title is a question. Does supplementation with marine-derived omega-3 fatty acids, you know, help reduce risk of cardiovascular disease? That just means, you know, omega-3 acids from fish. Does it help? The answer is there is no evidence that it does. They studied almost 80,000 participants in 10 trials and found that taking fish oil had no help with reducing fatal or non-fatal heart disease. So what once we thought was true, apparently is not true. And yet it shows that people who eat more fish have healthier hearts. And it points out the fact that when you take things that you think are the cause and put them in a pill, it doesn't make it better but something about eating the food itself here the fish does seem to make things better so once again there is there is no evidence right now for any supplements helping health except for the one in your realm and that is pregnant moms taking folic acid
1: yeah folic acid in pregnancy has long been studied and it's so standard it's almost difficult to think of it as a as a supplement the funny thing i think sometimes vitamins are like our congressmen and that <laughs> We generally, we don't we don't like them as a group, but we have one that we like. <laughs> yeah. So at OBGYN, you know, we're very fond of folic acid. As you uh, should be. And, and I'll have to admit, we're pretty fond of vitamin D, but it's tricky. There's so much literature, and it goes in so many different directions that it, it can really give you whiplash trying to keep up with the articles and the literature, can it?
0: Uh, It it certainly can. And and one further one was beta-carotene. You know, beta-carotene is natural, and natural is good, right? and people say that, I say, well, poison ivy is natural too, but (laughs) it doesn't mean it's it's any good. And people thought it was helpful. It actually increases lung cancer rates. You know, that's just not good. So wait for the data, eat healthy, lots of fruits, vegetables, and fish, save your money.
1: It's the same stuff our moms told us, isn't it?
0: Good old mom. <laughs> Thanks, mom. I love you,
1: mom. Yep.
0: And now we're on to Chris's Woman's Healthcare Tip of the Day.
1: Well, today we're going to talk about genetic testing and reviewing genetic testing for women related to family histories of breast and ovarian cancers. Now, this whole topic of genetic testing is a massive topic. We could spend two or three shows just talking about it. I'm going to concentrate and focus on ovarian and breast cancer genetic testing. There's stuff we could talk about, endometrial cancer and colon cancers, as well as pancreatic cancers. But for the sake of our time, we're going to focus on breast and ovarian genetic susceptibility testing. Have you been tested, Chris? I have not. That, that's good. I have no <laughs> susceptibility. But we could talk about men as well, particularly in breast cancer. Cuz ah. you know about 10% of breast cancers happen in men? But that's for another show.
0: And I've diagnosed some in men. There you go. But it's not common.
1: (laughs) Today, uh, there is the ability to perform a blood test to determine if you've got certain genetic mutations that could lead you to an increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer. You know, so these are called the BRCA test, B-R-A-C-A. We won't talk about what that means. But they're BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And these represent genes. It turns out, uh, because our creator is so smart... We actually have genes that are designed to fight certain cancers. So if you have a mutation or a defect in that gene, you may have an increased risk of developing the cancer that gene is supposed to be fighting. Amazing, and just isn't?
0: for our listeners who may hear
1: the term gene but not know what a gene is. Yeah, we're not talking about the guy next to you named gene. We're talking <laughs> about the sequences of DNA that really make us us right? Human DNA inside the cells, that DNA is, is gathered together in long chains to make genes, and then genes are translated into proteins, and proteins are everything, everything that, that is our body. Yes, so it's proteins are
0: structural things, and they're also enzymes that do something.
1: Absolutely. So who should be thinking about this BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing? Well, our friends at the US Preventive Services Task Force recommend that women who have a family history of breast, ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal cancer should be evaluated and determine if they're at increased risk for these harmful mutations, and then should therefore undergo the genetic testing. Uh, There's some easy rules of thumb to remember about this, and I'll I'll give you a couple. Breast cancer diagnosed before the age of 50 in a family member. Breast cancer in both breasts with the same woman both breast and ovarian cancers in either the same woman or the same family side, any male breast cancer in your family, uh, and there are others, but these are the most straightforward and easy to remember. So a family history is important to understand your relatives. There's something else to think about, and that is who should perform the test. Now this gets a little sticky. But it turns out that not all testing companies are created equally, and it actually matters. Uh, and these days, there is a lot of money floating about the market for genetic testing. So there's a lot of advertising. Uh, some of it you might see on television, some really cute uh, <laughs> advertisements about finding your family history. Yes, they test genomes, but the company needs to have a special expertise in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing. Now, I have no financial interest in this at all by way of disclosure. Uh, but I suggest using the Myriad Lab Company, who's the original company that started the BRCA1, BRCA2 testing.
0: Now, what if a patient comes in and their insurance will only pay for another company's? Does we that ever
1: happen? It has, but it's not very common. The, the insurance companies will argue whether payment uh, is appropriate, but they don't tend to get down to that level of which company should do it. They don't. That's good.
0: And when you said before, if you have a family history of breast cancer in someone under 50, do most breast cancers happen after the age of
1: 50? Well, there's really two kinds of breast cancers. Most cancer experts would say premenopausal breast cancer in women and postmenopausal breast cancer. They're really two separate diseases. Many would say postmenopausal breast cancer is a cancer you'll die with and not of, Ah. as opposed to the premenopausal breast cancer, much more serious and much more likely to be genetic and related to one of these mutations. Very good. So what's the significance of inheriting the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation? Let me give you a couple of examples. The lifetime risk for a woman developing breast or ovarian cancer is really increased if you have these mutations. So for instance, breast cancer. The general population, it's about a 12% chance of developing breast cancer by the time you're 80 but if you have the BRCA1 mutation, instead of a 12% chance, it's 72%. Wow. A dramatic increase. And will
0: that mostly be before the age of 50?
1: No, at some point before the age of 80. That's as detailed as it gets. Uh, Another one is interesting for ovarian cancer. Now, ovarian cancer is a very emotionally charged cancer when we hear about it, but it's actually quite rare. Only about a 1, 1. 1.2% lifetime risk for a woman developing ovarian cancer. But if she has the BRCA1 mutation instead of a 1%, it's a 44% chance before the age of 80.
0: Okay, so say test results you know, turn out positive. What do I do with that information as a patient?
1: Yeah, great question. I remember when these tests first came out, I thought, who would want to know such a horrible thing? Right. What would you do, just walk around every day wondering if today was the day? <laughs> but that's actually not true at all. For instance, let's say a woman has the BRCA1 mutation and an increased risk of breast cancer. Instead of waiting until 40 to get mammograms, she would start getting them immediately. Okay. And instead of just an annual mammogram, she would also get an annual MRI of the breast. And an MRI is much more specific and detailed at detecting very, very early breast cancers. The insurance companies would never pay for that unless you're BRCA positive.
0: And what about ovarian cancer?
1: Uh, The same would be true with ovarian. There is no good screening test for ovarian cancer, sadly. Most of the recommendations for women that have the BRCA mutation related to ovarian suggest having the ovaries removed wow. as soon as the woman's through using them. So at the end of her reproductive life, having the ovaries removed. And then having annual ultrasound exams to look at the ovaries in those years before she's ready to have them removed. Wow. Yeah, so if you see a physician who says you don't need genetic testing and you have a family history that's positive, You may want to think about finding another physician. (laughs) The bottom line, go online and complete the family history survey um, that's available and find out what your risk is. Now, I suggest you go to www.hereditarycancerquiz.com, hereditarycancerquiz.com, and then consult your woman's health physician about your need to obtain BRCA testing. And again, if your physician isn't familiar with it, find someone that is. The life of you and your family members could be dramatically affected by these results. So knowledge is like ice cream, Tom. More is better.
0: <laughs> and too much of a good thing is? Less better. Less better? <laughs> well, before we finish this first quarter, we're going to go to my favorite part of the show, the medical trivia question of the day. Now... You've all probably heard of the American Medical Association. The AMA. The AMA. And it's the same forwards and backwards. It's palindromic. And in fact, in this palindromic organization, Dr. Chris Stroud used to play a role. He was the parliamentarian,
1: weren't you, Chris? I I had a lot of roles in the AMA as a medical student and then later as a resident. That was back just when we were getting electricity. And... It was some time ago.
0: Yes, you and Tom Edison together. Well, the news often presents the AMA as representing the voice of all or the majority of American physicians. So my question is a multiple choice. What percentage of American physicians currently belong to the AMA? Is it A, 20, B, 35, C, 50, D, 65, or E, 80%? of American physicians belonging to the AMA. We'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio and an interview with Dr. Joe Dukowski. We're back with that interview section of our show on Dr. Doctor and today our guest is Dr. Joe Dukowski. He wrote a book called Perfectly Human, what children with disabilities teach us about imperfection Carrying the Cross and Happiness. Dr. Joe is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon in Cooperstown, New York. He teaches, does research at Columbia University, and for over 30 years, he's advocated for children and adults with disabilities, especially cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. Not only has he written a book, he has over 6 million views on a YouTube video he's going to talk about, Uh, also a special project he started with the, the New York Ballet. Dr. Joe, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Well, thank you. It's wonderful that you have me on this evening.
0: Now, Joe, you have fallen in love with patients that have cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and other developmental disabilities. How did this happen?
2: It's really quite strange, Tom, because I was an engineer, and I was actually analyzing nuclear weapons testing data for your government.
0: <laughs> this and, really uh, sounds related, Joe. <laughs> yeah, it, it does, doesn't it? Uh,
2: but I, I was looking around, and I was thinking about going to medical school, and I had to write an essay, and I wrote an essay about taking all this incredible technology that I was exposed to, that was being used to, hurt people, and apply it to help people with disabilities. Now, there's nobody in my family with a disability who's got cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or muscular dystrophy, and so I have no idea why I wrote that, except I would have to say it was a pure Holy Spirit moment, Yes. because 30 years later, that's exactly what I'm doing.
0: Well, thanks be to God. Well, can you tell our listeners, we hear the term cerebral palsy or CP, what is it?
2: Well, cerebral palsy is an injury or malformation of the human brain that happens in childhood, typically before two years of age, or happens in the womb, and it results in an imbalance signals going out to muscles, which means they may have difficulty walking or using their hands or speaking. Uh, the key thing with cerebral palsy it is non progressive. It's it's not like muscular dystrophy or rheumatoid arthritis. It's something you're going to have your whole life. But it doesn't. Most people with cerebral palsy have perfectly normal intelligence, um, whether they can speak with you or not. And so it's just they have trouble working or using their muscles. And so uh, it's uh, it's very common. There are about um, close to a million people in this country alone with cerebral palsy.
1: Now, Joe, how does how does it relate with your specialty of pediatric orthopedic surgery?
2: Well, when you have an imbalance in muscle forces and you're a growing person, you're going to develop contractures. You're going to develop deformities in your extremities. You may not be able to straighten your knee or or your ankle. And so it requires orthopedic care, your tendon lengthening, sometimes osteotomies or breaking a bone and realigning it to correct these deformities so that people can utilize their muscles to the best of their abilities.
1: Wow, I bet you had the chance to really see lives changed by some of the work that you've done on these patients.
2: Uh, It's a joy, and the the biggest life that's changed is mine because (laughs) they, well, there's there's no question of that. I mean, I'll tell you, this Monday I operated on a boy from Haiti who had a dislocated hip, and I put it back in for him, which was very difficult. And it's a very difficult, one would think a very painful operation. And then two days later, this boy is smiling at me, (laughs) and he's happy. And his father can now diaper him. His father can now bathe him. He doesn't live in pain constantly anymore and you just walk around and you think man i got the best job in the world
1: (laughs) (laughs) well with that in mind tell us about your book perfectly human why did you write it and what do you hope it'll accomplish
2: well i wrote it because i've had the privilege over 30 plus years of working with and learning from uh these children their adults and their families and uh but they don't have the time or the energy a lot of times to tell their stories. And so people don't know their stories. Mm. Um, If they move in next to you and you suddenly find this kid and you say, wow, this is, this is a kid. I love him. He's so much fun. You know, he's cool. Just the way he is. Then you understand, but it, most of these families are very busy. They're very consumed with what they have to do for their child and their other children, and or they don't have the kind of financial resources. So this book is really my way to tell their stories so that people look at them and stop them on the street and say, hi, how are you doing today?
0: The first time I heard about you, Joe, was in an email chain in the, some of the CMA Catholic Medical Association Leadership. It was something about your work with the New York City Ballet. Would you tell us about that? <laughs> oh, sure. You, you are a ballet uh, dancer, I... aren't you? No, I'm not.
2: But I was I was a ballroom instructor.
0: So there you Ooh, go. Ooh, um, so you are smooth on your feet.
2: <laughs> you well, know, I had a wonderful dancer. I mean, basically, uh, the best thing a man can do on the dance floor is stay out of the way of a, oh, the of woman. a talented woman. <laughs> yeah. And you yes. do that, and every take her off the floor, in says, "Man, he can dance." Um, but um, the New York City Ballet—I'd love to say this was my idea, but it wasn't. Um, a mother wrote the New York City Ballet who had a child with cerebral palsy, a little girl, and said, do you ever do workshops for children with disabilities? Well, they hadn't. But it kind of stuck in their craw because they do workshops all the time for children. And at that time, I was helping found the Cerebral Palsy Center at Columbia University. I I went down there two days a week for five years to help them. And suddenly I get this email, well, I helped the New York City Ballet set up programs for kids with disabilities. And you know, hey, if that ain't a chocolate chip cookie, I don't know what one <laughs> is, okay? You know, God throws chocolate chip cookies at us all the time. Okay. You gotta eat nothing them. better than a warm chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> and I say, Man, when he gives you one of those, bite into it. There so you go. I went down and I met with the mom and some people and I met with the ballet people and we talked about it. And we decided to do it. And then lo and behold, they give me two principal dancers as my instructors. I mean, these are two of their absolute best. Wow, great. And so, yeah, this is the New York City Ballet, Lincoln Center, the whole deal. So we set something up, we did it, um, and uh, they had never worked with kids with disabilities, and we had everybody in the room, and we did it in their studios. Uh, They did it for free, we did it for free, we still do. They provided a pianist, and we came out, and we had volunteers, so every child had a one-on-one so the parents could sit and watch, just like in a Little League or whatever. Yes. And um, we did it, and we had so much fun. I remember the male dancer runs up to me after the first class and says, Dr. D, you're right, they're just kids. (laughs) And that's all. it's it. That was it. From right there, they didn't see the disabilities. They saw the children. Beautiful. And that was it. And then you have dignity, you have respect, you know, you have love. And, and they have fallen in love with it, and they continue to do We continue to do it, and they have, like, almost 20 programs now for children and adults with disabilities at the New York City Ballet.
0: Wow. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing Perfectly Human, a book about children with disabilities with the author, Dr. Joe Ditkowski. Dr. Joe, does this work with the New York City Ballet has something to do with this viral video on the internet?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it does. Well, it was was just pure happenstance, so I bumped into some young journalists and uh, at dinner one night and asked if they were interested in doing this, and one of them did. She was from PBS and she was a filmmaker. So she came and filmed classes three and four. And then made a video, put it on Upworthy, and between Upworthy and YouTube, this week it passed 8 million hits.
0: Thanks be to God. And
2: uh, it is, and it has changed, it was just, it is, it's just so beautifully done. I mean, I was in Amsterdam in May of last year, and somebody walks up to me and says, you're the doctor on the ballet video, aren't you? (laughs) And I go, what? And he said, yeah. He said, I just want you to know I took that to the Dutch ballet, and I said, why aren't we doing this? (laughs) And he said, I want you to know we're going to do it. And I said, fine. So I gave him my email. And one of these rainy upstate New York October mornings, I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, getting ready to go to work. And up comes an email with pictures for the first ballet classes for kids with CP at The Hague.
0: Oh, Uh, that has to be so fulfilling. Oh, it is, but it's it, it is
2: fulfilling. But what has been really, really amazing to me is the dancers have fallen in love with it, and I've trained probably ten primo ballerinas how to do it now. And I kept wondering why do they fall in love with it, and then one day I realized every one of these incredible dancers started out as a little boy or a little girl who loved to move to music. Mm. And what happens is, you see, they have to be perfect for us. They hit it perfectly every night in the stage in New York City, whether they're in pain, whether they're feeling good, whatever they do. But when they walk into this room, suddenly they don't have to be perfect anymore. They're free.
0: They're Ah. free to enjoy
2: music for just what it is, and they go back to their own pure joy. And so you see, the gift goes both ways. And and in the best worlds, and in what I have learned and why I wrote the book, is the gift goes both ways. It isn't just what you do or what they're doing. They'll tell you they receive so much more from these children. And they give them their emails. They visit them at home. They are they're absolutely engaged with these kids. And they, they feel these kids give them a part of their heart and their soul back.
0: Well, you mentioned in your book, that there were four key elements to your book, and that you'd planned two of them, but that someone else came up with the other two. And the first planned outcome that you mentioned is that you are a doctor who fully believes in both faith and science, and that their unholy and unnatural separation has had disastrous consequences in medical practice. Would you explain what you mean by that, Joe?
2: Absolutely. First off, let's remember that faith is a gift. You can't give yourself faith. Faith is something that comes directly from God. You can only grow it and mature it. But you know something? Everybody looks at science as this great rational, uh, whether it's physics or chemistry or physiology or whatever, an understanding of the rational world. But you know something? Where do you think you got the gift to understand science? (laughs) That's a gift, too the in, have the intellect to have that gift and so it's all a gift the gift of faith the gift of knowledge and that's what science just means is knowledge It's latin for knowledge and so it's all a gift and it's so what it's what we do with it you know one of the things i've heard some people talk about cuz i always talk about faith and science and they say well, why don't you talk about faith and reason well there're two reasons for that the first is that number one faith is reasonable just like science is Uh (laughs) And the second is, I consider when people say faith and reason, I consider that a trap in modern society, Mm -hmm. because if you talk that way, then in essence, you're implying that to be a man or woman of faith, you have to turn off your intellect, and I refuse to do that.
1: Yeah, I remember I had this discussion years ago with a college professor, and she said, you think... Christianity is just for the simple masses, she said, try to explain the Trinity. (laughs) It's not simple. No, not at all. It's not faith or reason. It's both, isn't it?
2: Yes, but it's also in Genesis. Let us make man in our image.
0: Mm, True. So what are the disastrous (laughs) consequences of separating them?
2: Well, we see them all through. We see them in abortion. We see them in... uh, physician-assisted suicide, which is a practically an oxymoron, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, no. uh, We just look at the way that human life is being devalued, or people try and look at human life in terms of economic templates or whatever, and those are catastrophic. Uh, so, but when you bring faith and science together, when you realize that, you know, every, nobody can will their heart to beat once. <laughs> every heartbeat is a gift, it is a gift from a loving, engaged God that he's not done with you.
0: Well, don't so miss... We
2: have to honor every one of those.
0: Well, don't miss more of Dr. Joe coming back right after the break. This is Dr. Doctor back with our guest, Dr. Joe Dutkowski, talking about his book, Perfectly Human, and his work with imperfect humans who are perfectly happy. In fact, that's a lead into the next question, Joe. The second intentional point in your book is the relationship between perfection and happiness or imperfection and happiness. What do you think is the relationship with physical perfection and happiness?
2: Well, I think it's... It's very strong because all you have to look at is our current commercial culture. And what they're trying to tell you right now is if you just had the right car, the right house, had a raise, maybe the right spouse, or the right clothes or shoes even, then life would be perfect and you would be happy. But we know that that's not working because we see all the despondency and depression, anxiety and addiction and conflict that is going on in this culture. And I've been blessed beyond belief to spend my last thirty years working with and learning from people with disabilities and their families, and because of them, I've learned to love myself and accept myself, even and even with my dis with my inabilities or disabilities, and um, and sometimes because of them, you know, we're only linked, all of us are only temporarily able-bodied.
0: <laughs> That's true. So you see that these kids who are clearly imperfect physically are happy. Would you say, on average, they're happier than people whose bodies are working better?
2: You know, I, I think they have a core happiness. I think they there's sorrow in, in the way that they are often not fully accepted into society. But from a core standpoint, from a life standpoint, they, they're Anybody who does accept themselves as who they are will find themselves happier.
1: It's inter- it's interesting. It's that difference between happiness and joy, isn't it? Uh, with Happiness yeah. being the bite of the chocolate chip cookie, but joy, understanding really who we are and why we are and where we're going. Uh,
2: yeah, and understanding that, you know, the ground is never more level than at the foot of the cross.
0: Mm. Um,
2: I... I've been in a lot of churches, and I've yet to see the cross for people with cerebral palsy or the cross for people with Down syndrome or the cross for people with muscular dystrophy or with only one leg. Um, I've only keep seeing one. <laughs> and um, that's who he is, because that Jesus dies for everybody. He takes us all in. And, you know, it, what the most remarkable thing about imperfection, this hit me one day, and I realized that, you know, when you get to heaven, you know why you're gonna how you're gonna recognize Jesus. How Joe? He's got the only perfect body in heaven. <laughs> he, you know, we know. Okay, we know that he rose from the dead, and he had holes in his hands and his feet, and one in his side, ones that Saint Thomas stuck his hand into. And then we also know that he, uh, he, he ascended into heaven afterwards with that body because that's the one he rose from the dead with. But yet we all get brand new bodies. And I could use one, because mine's 62 <laughs> years old. And, uh, but, you know, you think about the perfect love for all time, for eternity, is going to be represented by the only imperfect body in heaven.
0: That is wonderful food for thought, Joe. Now... You said that your book had two unintended good consequences. Tell us about them.
2: Well, the, the first unintended consequence uh, was the fact that people are calling me and writing me and saying that you're saying that it's okay for me to expect more out of health care than I'm getting right now. And I'm hearing the same thing from doctors, that healthcare care is kind of degenerating into this um, amorphous um, kind of business-like approach and it's not it's two people it's two people across from each other who are working together to try and to relieve the pain and suffering of one and that is a marvelous relationship that is greater than what is being presented right now the second thing that came out is that i realized on mother's day after my wife passed away in march of uh, 2016. My wife Karen, wonderful woman, that I had inadvertently written our 36-year love story as a subplot in the book, oh. and the the early test readers, uh, all the men missed it.
0: <laughs>
1: and imagine all the that. Women,
2: imagine that. And all <laughs> the women, women, all of them, whether they had known Karen or had ever never met Karen, all came back to me and said, "Joe, this is good, but I want more Karen." And so, you know, four months after she's passed away, I'm sitting down with a heavy heart writing more Karen stories, and I weaved them into the narrative of the book, and they were right. It took it to a whole different level. It kind of took a lot of the doctor feel out of it, too much doctor feel, and made it a human book. And that was just, it, 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 it really finished the book it was what needed to be done to take it to the next level
0: isn't it great seeing the fruitfulness of your married life and married love go beyond the grave in time also
2: oh it is karen still affects so many people here um and a lot of people around uh, through the order of malta through her work with uh the pilgrimage for life um and work that she did uh, as a professional from um as a teacher of the blind and visually impaired.
0: If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor, where Dr. Chris Stroud and I are discussing the book Perfectly Human with its author, pediatric orthopedic surgeon Dr. Joe Dutkowski. Now, your wife made a startling discovery about CP patients just by her astute observations. Tell us about this.
2: Yes, yeah, she did. Uh, Karen went back to work after 16 years of really being a stay-at-home mom. She was a teacher of the blind and visually impaired, and she worked as an itinerant teacher out in these little country uh, school districts. And she came back one day and she said, what's this about visual impairment and cerebral palsy? And me, supposedly the expert in cerebral palsy, says, what are you talking about? <laughs> she said, all of all of my students are your patients. I said, what? She describing to me what she had observed, and I said, you're on something huge here. And she said, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, <laughs> and, and, you know, she's a very humble woman. It took me three years to get her to present it at the National International Academy because what she had discovered is there were issues of visual field, which people knew about, but she also picked up on something called cortical visual impairment, which had to do with processing and perception, and together, all of this was being misconstrued as intellectual disability Ah. or lack of ability in these children, and she was able to perceive that it was actually a visual impairment, and it was a visual impairment through... Skilled special education could be overcome, mm. and then an intelligent child would emerge where somebody thought that this was somebody who didn't have a strong intellect. Oh, wow. And you can imagine what that means for the life of one, the child, and two, the family. And so when she finally, I finally twisted her arm after three years to come in front of this international group and presented it, and that year there were 40 instructional courses. We we're in instructional course 39. The next two years, we were instructional course one. (laughs) Because she was a brilliant teacher, and she blew the room out of the water, and people were coming up to her. She couldn't get coffee afterwards and saying, that's it. You're telling me what I've been seeing, and I haven't understood. And it really did revolutionize a lot of the care of individuals with cerebral palsy and allowed people to begin to understand this visual disability, which were making people think that their intellect was not normal.
0: How oh,
1: freeing that must what be. What a beautiful story and beautiful
0: revelation.
2: Absolutely.
0: How can our listeners purchase your book?
2: Uh, the only place you can get it right now is on Amazon.com. You can put in Perfectly Human, or you can put in Joseph Dukowski, and it'll come up. You can get it on either a Kindle version or a paperback version right now.
0: And where... Could our listeners find your video?
2: Oh, the video of the uh, the ballet video. You yes. can either go on Upworthy, or you can go on YouTube. And if you want to go on YouTube, put in New York City Ballet and cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. It will come up. It's a five minute and twenty second video. It will change your life. It has changed the It has changed the whole culture at Lincoln Center.
1: We'll, we'll try to get uh, that. Uh, we'll try to get it on our Facebook page as well. Oh, absolutely. Joe, we have about 90
0: seconds left. What else would you like to leave our listeners with?
2: I would like to leave the listeners to realize that all people are created equally by God. God doesn't make mistakes, okay? Uh, We don't have people with disabilities in this world because God made a mistake here or God messed this thing up here. God has a plan, And I know that people with disabilities have blessed me beyond belief. Um, And when you see somebody with disability, go up and say hello, shake their hand, talk with them. There's nothing more powerful for a community than the group to build a ramp into somebody's house if they have a wheelchair. Because by the time that ramp is built, you won't see the wheelchair. You'll see the child, just like the dancers did in the New York
1: City Ballet. Well, Dr. Joe, it has been moving and touching, just to share these thoughts with you here on the air. Our listeners are fortunate to get a chance to get to know you a little bit better.
2: Well, you're very kind to put me on, and this is where I I get to see the image and likeness of God every day in what I do, and I don't see how I could be any more blessed.
1: You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now it's the
0: time to answer today's medical trivia question. You've all heard of the American Medical Association. The news often presents that the AMA represents the voice of all practicing physicians in America. But what percentage of American physicians currently belong to the AMA? Is it 20, 35, 50, 65, or 80 percent? Have you figured it out? Chris, back when you were parliamentarian, what do you think the percentage was?
1: Oh, it was much higher way back in the old golden days, you know, closer to 50 plus 65 percent, and even higher if you look just at medical students.
0: Yeah, well, in the 1950s, the membership actually peaked at 75%. And among medical students, I just checked online, there's 80,000 medical students, 55,000 belong. But most of us did because it was free. And free (laughs) is cheap. So we all got a free medical journal with it. But if you subtract out the medical students from the 234,000 members and you look at 926,000 active physicians, you end up with about 20% of active physicians currently belong to the AMA.
1: And I'll bet that shocks most listeners that it's that low.
0: It, it probably does. Uh, but but it's true. It has become, to many physicians, irrelevant.
1: Now, it, you know, in, in giving the, uh, the AMA its, its fair share, they were responsible for some great work, particularly around medical education uh, in the early parts of uh, the century. Uh, but it, it certainly would feel as though they've lost their way and don't speak the Voice of American Medicine anymore. And you might ask, why? Why, Chris? I think it's pretty clear. Now, of course, I would have a biased view, wouldn't I? But it has to do with some of their positions they take yes, on absolutely. important matters of life, on gender, on euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. Thankfully...
0: Uh, They are still on the books for opposing physician-assisted suicide.
1: Yeah, we're worried about that, aren't we? Because if they change their position, it'll be presented in the popular media as though all the physicians now are supporting this position.
0: So the take-home point for listeners is that if you hear the AMA supports something, do not equate that with the majority of physicians support something. This is just one of many different uh, interest groups among physicians. It may be the largest one, but uh, many people who disagree with it have left it, leaving perhaps a higher percentage of people who agree with their positions within it.
1: Absolutely. You know, I would suggest if you're compulsive about these matters as a patient, ask your physician or read about your physician and see which organizations like this they belong to. And the next time you're in the office, ask them why. Why are you in this organization or that organization? And do you know what their position is on these things that are important to me? That's a good point.
0: I also know that there are a number of good Catholic physicians who belong to the AMA because they want to be change agents, which I think is a noble thing to do to try to positively influence peers who who may disagree with them on life issues.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now we have an interesting listener question, which Chris has been anxiously waiting to respond to. And in fact, we're going to have a good discussion about it. And a listener asks this simple question. What is the Catholic Church's stance on circumcision?
1: So we open the catechism to <laughs> circumcision. And there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's, how does the saying go, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, correct? Right. Yeah, the circumcision question is a tough one. And people, uh, not Unlike the vaccination question, I think, that as we've seen yes. in some of our discussions, people tend to be pretty polarized uh, on the issue without a lot of understanding in the middle. And it, it makes sense why somebody would ask this question. It's a question
0: I asked myself back when we started having babies in my family, because in my dermatology residency, circumcision was presented as the healthy thing to do. It reduced the risks of certain sexually transmitted diseases of squamous cell carcinoma of the penis uh, and of several other diseases, several other infections. So it was thought this is the, the healthy way to be. Uh, in fact, it really took off in the United States really sometime around the 1940s and was thought to be a cleanliness thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But but surprisingly, it's
0: not that common in
1: other parts of the world. Well, and it varies tremendously in America based on where you live.
0: Yeah. 40% of people in the Western U.S. circumcised boys
1: but 80 percent of midwesterners do it's interesting in my practice i don't think we see quite 80 percent uh i I would say it's more than 50 percent uh but it's not quite 80 but to your point if we if we just move a few miles in either direction we can see dramatic changes certainly the northeast uh, is different than the the southwest
0: yes and in fact i just pulled off of the cdc website and they've been tracking numbers of circumcisions since at least 1979 And from 1979 to now, it's been a a gentle downhill, but not much, from 65% in 1979 to about 60% now nationwide. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Definitely, Definitely changing in a cultural, as the culture changes.
0: The Catholic Church has not stated emphatically one way or another on this issue. Some theologians, or I should say ethicists, have weighed in and the ethicists who weigh in against it bring up something from a document called the ethical and religious directives in fact chris and i interviewed uh, somebody about this uh, topic uh, some shows back and it has a section on bodily integrity and that our bodily integrity must be respected so if i feel like my right leg doesn't feel like part of me i want you to cut it off well you don't do that and so these ethicists are equating a circumcision with removing a perfectly good part of you that you need, like your right
1: leg. It's not completely dissimilar to some of our discussions around body piercings uh, or tattoos, is it, in the sense that your body is important, it's the temple, uh, that it has to be treated with respect and integrity. Um, so it's, it's a tricky situation, tricky issue, isn't it?
0: Well, how do you handle it with your patients, Chris?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing this a long time. and. Uh, position that I've come to is that we really don't favor or disfavor infant circumcision. I try to tell parents, this is a decision that the two of you have to make uh, in, your best, in your best conscience. Um, what I like to stress with them, though, is that this is actually not a medical decision. So to your point, uh, there really, I think, isn't good evidence that this confers some degree of health. That is to say, there's no health benefit from circumcising boys,
0: and there's no great health loss either. the The scales are pretty even as of current data.
1: I think I think uh, I think that's a very correct view. And so I like to I like to use the analogous situation of piercing an infant baby girl's ears. It's cosmetic and it's cultural. So uh, there's certainly no argument, not a good argument, to do it. Uh, and I don't think there's a medical argument uh, in opposition to doing it. So it's cosmetic. Uh, And it's cultural. So you can't go wrong. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't always make the decision easier to make, does it?
0: No, because oftentimes parents want their little boys to look like dad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we say that. uh, And it turns out there's actually some studies that say that doesn't seem to matter and kids don't seem to notice or care or anything like that. But back to the analogous tattoo or body piercing, you know, so so much of these decisions have to do with motivation. So, if whether it's um, it's appearing to be overly pious at mass in order to attract attention to yourself, well, that would be sinful because your your motives were wrong. Uh, a tattoo that says, you know, I don't need the church, well, that's bad. You know, maybe <laughs> yes, it a, is. maybe a cross <laughs> commemorating the death of a child. Maybe that's a different reason to have a tattoo. So what's motivating the decision in so many ethical decisions is what's important. Now, I don't think there's any vanity involved in circumcision. Um, Not that I can think of. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I can imagine. But I would personally like to leave listeners with the idea that this is a a cultural and a cosmetic decision. Don't let opinions about uh, medical benefit sort of get into the discussion.
0: I think that uh, that makes sense. Chris, I know in preparing for this show, you mentioned that you had an event recently with a patient that you wanted to share a story that might be of interest.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. Yeah, I have a great story of a patient, and I'll make up some names just so that it sounds better. Her name is Melissa, and she was a patient uh, in her early to mid-40s who was pregnant. And because of her so-called advanced maternal age, (laughs) I had to talk with her about the risk of Down syndrome um, and the child that she was carrying. now she had a child already with Down syndrome. Wow, she had several children, and she had one with Down syndrome. And as we were talking about it, she got this beautiful glow on her face, and i I didn't I was talking, and she was glowing. and I thought, <laughs> what is she wanting to say to me? So when I finally stopped talking to let her speak, she said, uh, "I have to tell you about my son, uh, And her son was, talking to her about being pregnant, not the child with Down syndrome, but one of her other children, who was about seven. And she said, uh, excuse me, and he said, the son said to his mom, I hope this baby is like Johnny. Oh my goodness. Johnny with Down syndrome. And she was a little taken aback by that. And she said, why is that? And her son said, because he's just so special. And, you know, I, I just froze in time there for a moment. I really didn't know what to say. That was the most beautiful thing representing uh, the value and the importance of every life, no matter how different, no matter how big or small or, or pretty or ugly, um, the value of that life. And isn't it funny that God would use a seven-year-old to point that out to us? But what a beautiful position. He really is special. Uh, and, and she would say a thousand times over, that her child with Down syndrome brings so much love and so much grace to that family by being so special.
0: What is it that that seven-year-old enjoyed about his younger brother?
1: You know, that's a good question, isn't it? You know, she said that um, all of the kids would dote on the child with Down syndrome, and he would laugh at them, and they all wanted to bring him things, and they all wanted to take care of him. It's as though the children really have the innate ability to sense this is someone that I'm supposed to care for.
0: So he had that ability to bring together other people in a joyful fashion. Yeah. I mean, what a gift that is. And yet that gift that is being rejected by a whole country.
1: Absolutely. In Iceland. You know, it's funny. Children up to a certain age have the ability to separate difference from less value. Right? Ah. You're different from me, but that doesn't make you less than me. It just makes you different. And in some ways it might make you more attractive to me because you're different. Yes. Isn't it sad that as we age and the world becomes more a part of us, we start to equate difference with diminished value?
0: That is very sad. Well, I think it's appropriate discussing it after today's guest and we're glad you joined us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, Doctor. I know that Chris and I love doing this and we are so glad that you are listening, supporting us. Please tell your friends about us. Please email a question if you have a question. Thank you for listening again to this episode of Dr. Doctor, Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. Thank you for joining us. And remember your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow So make good decisions and choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, Dr. George Delgado will discuss his promising research into abortion pill reversal and how women and babies can be saved even after a chemical abortion has begun. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio
2: app.